Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Well, this is the passage that we have been building towards since we began this book back in chapter 1, verse 1. Um, Of course, there's a way we'll say that same thing when we reach the very last verse of the book of Romans. But from the very beginning when we began, one of the things we said is that the book of Romans breaks up into two main parts. The first 11 chapters being uh, one of the deepest places in all of God's revelation, showing us gospel truths showing us what he has done to save souls. And then starting in chapter 12 comes the response to these things. And so we come here to the end of this first unit of the the doctrine section. The chronology of these 11 chapters is the chronology of the earth. The sequence, the thoughts, the end, the purpose, the goal of these 11 chapters is the sequence, the conclusion, the goal, the end of the history and the future of this earth. We have walked through God's plan of redemption. God is glorious and worthy of worship. Mankind rebelled and fell, but God has worked so as to turn affection and attention to himself. And in the end, every created thing, every created thing, what is uh, on the earth, above the earth, under the earth, all that is in the sea, the living and the dead, every created thing, men, angels, creatures, we don't even understand, every created thing will see that God is glorious and will respond to him like he deserves to be responded to, which is enraptured worship and submission. Everything will glorify God in the end. And how God has worked to, to accomplish this is marvelous and incomprehensible. You know, the, the, the Mariana Trench is the deepest place in all of the oceans. It's it's around 36,000 feet deep, which, you know, we might as well just say a gigabajillion. Like it's an incomprehensible number when it comes to something like that. You could put Mount Everest in it and the top would still be covered by so much water you couldn't see it from the surface. So if you were swimming in the ocean above that place up at the surface and you held your breath and you decided to dive down as far as you could possibly go, when you reached the depth until you felt like your lungs were just going to explode, you still would not be one thousandth of the way down. You would have seen a lot, but what's left is still incomprehensible. Paul at the end of 11 chapters, 11 chapters of some of the the deepest gospel doctrine, the deepest revelations of what God has done that is given to us in scripture comes to the bottom of his breath, having marveled at a lot and says, what is yet to discover is still incomprehensible. 
And at the end of it, Paul cannot contain himself. His meditations on the riches of the gospel lead him to overflow in praise. It, it, it's my hope that at least in some partial way, we'll, we'll feel what he felt when he, when he penned this passage here, responding to the message of the gospel. This passage is almost like a song. It's not exactly, but it's almost like a psalm, maybe like one of the psalms sung by Israel. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of walk us through it line by line. I'll start by making some general observations of the text. Then we'll work through each statement that is made here, the truths about God that are revealed. So here we go. This is point number five, the final point from uh, this chapter, the doxology. The word doxology um, comes from the Greek word doxos, which is, is the Greek word for uh, glory. You're probably familiar with that word because we have a song that we call the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. It's a good one to teach your children at a young age. This, this passage right here is a doxology, a statement of the glory of God. So this passage is, it's kind of like a hymn of sorts. I'm not saying necessarily that the early church sang it. It's possible that they did. But I mentioned that it's, it's kind of like a psalm. It's a herald of worship. It's a statement of God's glory that overflows from internal worship. It's, it's Paul saying with his lips things that began in his heart. Like the Psalms, they are, this passage is, uh, it's poetic in nature. Um, unlike a, a lot of garbage poetry and songs from our day, which... Um, say nothing. They're pretty words strung together, but have absolutely no meaning. The poetry from the Bible is not like that. Uh, the poetry from the Bible, it stirs our emotions. It, it kindles our affections, which is what poetry is supposed to do. But, but it doesn't do it by just stringing nice sounding words together. It, it does it by stating truth, wonderful, deep, beautiful truth, but saying it in a way that is beautiful. It's, it's saying it in a way that, that stirs those affections for it. And at the end of 11 chapters of riches, gospel riches, Paul overflows into praise and, and we're meant to join him in this. Now, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to highlight here is that this is the response that, that doctrine is supposed to elicit. You know, so sometimes when the world hears the word doctrine, that's one of those words they despise and they roll their eyes and, and hate these kinds of things. The people of God, you know, we, we love doctrine. Doctrine is referring to a, a set of truths together. So it's more than just one truth. It's a, it's a collection of truths together. But listen, when biblical doctrine is boring to a man's heart, Something is drastically wrong because when you love God, when you love his glory, and when you believe the gospel, you are going to delight to learn about it. You're going to delight to talk about it. You know, I, I just can't be convinced that someone that actually believes the message of the gospel actually believes 
that we were once standing in line to enter the gates of hell. We were going to receive a torment that is so severe that in Luke 16, the, the, the man in hell lifts up his eyes and cries out for just a single drop of water so that for just one moment, he could have this small little bit of relief. We were heading to that. And yet Christ bore our sins on the cross, bled in our place. And then now for those who are in Christ, we're receiving Revelation 21 and 22, this kingdom of joy and delight forever and ever living in enraptured satisfaction. I just can't be convinced that if you believe that, you can't find delight in talking about it. If you love God, love his glory and believe the gospel, doctrine will bring delight to your soul. And we, we have come out of uh, 11 chapters of rich, rich hope, promises, the grace of God being extended from heaven. As these things were spoken, the angels in heaven were crying out in worship. There is a response we are supposed to have when we hear uh, these things. We were hopeless and now have been given riches in Christ. The message and the truths of the gospel are supposed to produce within us a response. And here are, here are four of the right biblical responses that are supposed to come to our hearts uh, when, when we learn these truths. Four Holy Spirit-empowered responses. First, worship. Second, obedience. Third, service. Fourth, holiness. And if you watch what happens, this is uh, the sequence of the book of Romans. We've had 11 chapters of gospel truth. And now what comes at the end of chapter 11, the first response, worship. And then when we start chapter 12, it's going to be 12, 13, 14, and 15 chapters uh, teaching. Here is how the people of God live in the response of gratitude. It is all about obedience, serving the kingdom of God, and, and living in a way that is holy unto him. The gospel produces in the hearts of God's people a response of gratitude, love, joy, action. It produces fruit. And where we are here at the end of chapter 11 here, this is Paul's response of worship. The Holy Spirit aided him and helped him to worship. And we are given this text to join with him rejoicing in this. So let me, let me walk us through the lines here. So if you look at verse 33, Paul begins, Oh, the depth of the riches. You know, Paul's personality, you can, you can kind of start to pick up whenever you read much of him, read the letters of Paul. We've got plenty of it in the New Testament. I, I get the idea that Paul he, he kind of reminds me of the Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you, if you knew who that, that preacher was. Kind of a, a stern, didactic kind of guy. A guy that had joy, but, but more of a stern kind of guy. Paul's writing style is very didactic. What we mean by didactic is it's straightforward. Uh, 
Paul doesn't do a whole lot of waxing eloquent. I mean, there are times, but it's mostly straightforward um, kind of teaching that is there. It doesn't seem that he often got poetic, but this right here, this is an example of, of a, what I think of a stern faced didactic kind of guy who was a very serious sort of man who is just enraptured in worship and, and Paul turns poetic here. And you could just, you could just sort of get this sense of Paul sitting in the chair speaking as, as the man was uh, transcribing what he said. And Paul sits in that chair and says, oh, the depth of the riches when the text says, oh, it's the Greek word, um, be ready for this, it's real complicated, um, oh, it's omega uh, in the Greek alphabet there. This is one of those we stole from Greek there. And, and, and we know what it means. We, we, we say the word oh when we are um, adding energy to what we're saying there. And so when Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, he, he is saying something with the deepest of affections in his heart. He has been stirred to deep emotion um, in response of gratitude. And by way of application, Christian, I don't know if you've come to a place yet that you have seen Christ as so beautiful that you've been overwhelmed by what we deserve and what we've been given by the grace that has come, that there's ever been a time that in prayer, in song, in something, your heart and your lips just cry out, oh God, thank you. Oh, the depths, something along those lines with the oh that you are communicating to God. I don't know if you've been there yet, but if not, keep pressing, keep seeking, seeking his face. There is a joy, there is a freedom that is rich and it transcends anything else. No, there's no other satisfaction that you'll find in this world that compares with knowing Christ. Keep seeking that. And then once you get there and experience that kind of gratitude for the first time, the, the, the great work then is to try to live there. You know, that, the trying to live there is probably more hard than getting there the first time, but Say, your soul needs to say with Paul, oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches. So he, he continues on there, oh, the depth. And, and then the New American Standard reads, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There are many other translations that say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge. And, and so here's the difference. The New American Standard is saying, that there are deep riches in these two things, God's wisdom and God's knowledge. If you read it the other way, it is saying that there is great depth, oh, the depth of three things, God's riches, God's wisdom, and God's knowledge. Well, I, I actually think, I don't like to disagree with my New American Standard, but I actually think the latter one is, is probably more accurate, that that's what it's saying, is, is here are three things that are, that are deep and wonderful, God's riches, God's wisdom and God's knowledge. These riches here would be referring to uh, the, the, the riches of grace, the riches that come to us because of Christ, the riches that are ours in Christ, God giving us 
himself. You remember over in Philippians that Paul uses language like this when he says, I count everything. All of the other things in my life, I, I count it all to be. And we really just don't have a good English word to translate, but it's, it, 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 it's a kind of a, a graphic and gross word. I count it all to be dung, trash, refuse, rubbish. Okay, Paul's talking about even good gifts. He's not talking about evil. He's talking about even good things. He says, it's all trash compared to this, to know Christ, to know Christ. Oh, the depth of the riches that we have in Christ because of his grace. These riches are not earthly riches. Paul himself died in poverty, a body riddled with scars from the abuse he received from preaching the gospel. His head was removed by the sword. This is not earthly riches. But you and I would really like to be Paul on the day of judgment because of the eternal riches that he will receive. And then Paul also praises the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, uh, knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. There's, there's some overlap, of course, but a man can be incredibly knowledgeable, but be incredibly unwise. His life be a wreck because he doesn't understand how to take knowledge and use it skillfully to bring order and harmony that is there. One element of wisdom is knowing what to do with knowledge. And one of the themes that we'll see throughout this passage again and again is that um, the Spirit is leading us to, to marvel at the plan of redemption, to, to, to marvel at all that was involved in how God, how God ordained and orchestrated the unfolding of this, these billions of events and details that all produced redemption and in the end, will result in all created things seeing his glory. I, I, I think again and again, it's the marveling at the work of God to bring about redemption and even how poetically and wonderfully and deep he wrote history to bring all of these things about. So watch what is said in the next line, verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments. Uh, now, in speaking about these judgments, I, I don't think that this is referring to God's um, wrath. So not judgment in that sense, but I think it's referring to the decisions of God. Um, so like if we say something like how you educate your children, that's your judgment call. What do we mean? That's a decision that you make there. And the Bible does use this language sometimes of the way that God speaks. And so what, it, what it's talking about is his decrees, his plan, his purposes how he used wisdom to bring about the, the, the fullness of time and the, the world being right and Christ coming in the way that he did and all that was involved. It is so astounding. We can't begin to understand the creativity, the imagination that went into, how did he write this? I mean, we read the Bible and have trouble keeping up with the dumbed down kitty version of just explaining what he did, let alone we try to imagine what was involved and how did he do it? How did he write it? How can you think through a trillion details 
that all needed to happen. You know, you think about something as simple as Moses would not have been the, the right man to lead Israel out of Egypt if he had not been raised in Pharaoh's household. Moses would not have been raised in Pharaoh's household unless he had been taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. He would not have been taken in by Pharaoh's daughter unless he'd been put in a basket and floated down the river. And by the way, on the right day when she was in the right mood to be put in the river, he had to be given up. He was given up because Pharaoh was killing baby boys. Pharaoh was killing baby boys because Israel prospered in the land. Israel was in the land because of Joseph. Joseph was in the land because his brother sold him into slavery. Like you, you, we could keep doing this. <laughs> We'd be here a long time. And that's just one little lineage of a, a train of events. And we realize that God's plan in bringing about not only Jesus coming to this earth, but then the applying of salvation to every chosen person of God in history. You try to think through all that went into you know, you, 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 you Christian, for you who are in Christ, you, you do realize every single detail and event of your life somehow worked together by God to put you in the right frame of mind so that you wanted Jesus at some point. Like I, I've, I've reflected back a little bit on when I came to faith and I, I can remember shortly before the first time I ever heard the gospel, I had a conversation with my mom and it convicted me of sin in a way that I never had before. And I understood some things so that later when I heard the gospel, it made sense to me. God did a thousand details in your life to bring you to a point that you wanted Christ. How can we even begin to try to follow along with what he's done, let, let alone try to imagine the, the creativity, the knowledge, the wisdom that it took to orchestrate. And before it was orchestrated, he ordained. Before it was ordained, he thought through trillions of scenarios and knew how each one of them would turn out. How unsearchable are his judgments? And then next, how unfathomable his ways when it says how unfathomable his ways, I'm tempted to, you know, spend some time talking about the wonders of creation and the, the creativity and imagination that went into making this world and this universe. And that would be time well spent, you know, things like the human eye has more than a, a 1 million cells and they form nine different parts. And all of those parts have to be all operating and in conjunction with one another, or you don't see Try to imagine that through a Darwinistic lens sometime. You see the ignorance of that. But I think what is in view here, though, over and over, is the plan of redemption. So when he says how unfathomable his ways, yes, it is true in creation, but I think it's in the plan of redemption. It is astounding that God has brought about this history in the way that he has, and it all ties together and is summed up in Christ. There are single words in the book of Genesis, which occurred thousands of years before Jesus ever came. And they are full. That word is fulfilled in Christ. When he came, God is all in all. There is no one like him. His ways are incomprehensible. How unsearchable are his judgments and un 
unfathomable his ways. And then look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? God has no counselors and he needs no counselors. Now there are a lot of people who have no counselors, but it's not because they're wise. (laughs) The more we grow, the more we see the need for counsel, but God has no need. There's never been a situation where he needed anyone's advice. As much as sometimes we may think he needs ours. He consults with no no one who could keep up. There's no one like him. He stands in the place that no one else stands. There's no one who has the right to offer counsel. There's no one who has any grounds to command him, challenge him, accuse him, or question him. And, and when we say that, nobody, nobody has the grounds, nobody has the right. I mean, that doesn't stop people from trying, but nobody has the right, nobody has the grounds. That's true in at least two ways. First, God is completely righteous. Everything that he does is righteous. He loves what is right. He hates what's unrighteous. God has never, not even once in all of time, ever even desired something one one thousandth of a degree unrighteous. If the smallest sin in existence weighed a pound, God has never even desired an ounce. Anyone who attempts to question him, anyone who attempts to put God on trial, is questioning the only one who is ultimately righteous in his own nature, has never even desired anything wrong, let alone acted on it. But the second way that it's true that no one has uh, the grounds to, to challenge or accuse or question God is that no one has a position of authority to do so. There's no one equal. There's definitely no one above him. God is accountable to no one. There's no board that he answers to. There's no committee whose job it is to make sure he stays in line. He answers to no one. He is God. And part of what that means is that if you trace the ladder of authority to the highest place, there's a throne. There's a throne that stands over every other authority of men and angels, creatures and planets that we may not even understand. And it is him, the kings of the earth, the principalities of angels. They are all under the authority of the one who rules heaven and earth and the one who is the judge of the living and the dead. You know, when the Bible says that statement, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. A lot of times we don't, we don't grasp the full weight of what that means. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And that means that every created thing, every angel is all going to answer to him. The most staunch atheist who hates God with all of his being is still accountable to the one who is the judge of the living and the dead. The judge and the living of the dead, we are going to answer for even every thought that we think. Even if God had ever acted in a way that was an ounce wicked, there's no one who could do anything about it because there's no court you could bring him to. But thankfully, he is righteous. He's never even desired evil. God is perfect, holy, righteous, 
And he is so righteous and so glorious. And his plan is working to a place that even in hell, no one will be able to even tell themselves that God is unrighteous, that God is guilty. Now, where do I get that idea? Did I just make it up? Okay, no. This comes out of Romans 2. This is kind of a thought that came in my mind after Brian's Sunday school class of, of, of last week. In Romans 2, we're told that on the day of judgment, every man's conscience will either defend or accuse him in everything. And so in other words, what does that mean? It means that the day of judgment will be the great reckoning in the most ultimate sense. It will be the indisputable day, even to their own hearts. In our day, courts get things wrong. And after a, a, a judge gives a, uh, gives a pronouncement, people may complain about the decisions. But on that day, the day of judgment, even to try to lie to their own hearts, no one will be able to even deceive their own selves that they are in the right and God is wrong. They will see God is righteous. They will be incapable of believing anything else. You know, on earth, you cannot convince the stubborn fool that he's wrong. The day of judgment will. The day of judgment will convince even the most stiff-necked of the righteousness of God. The haughty will be brought low. Those in hell, it will be proven to them that they are wrong and God is righteous. I think that that means even in their own thoughts. They will not be able to lie to themselves any longer. And what this means, if you think about it, what this means is that when it is all said and consummated, what is on the earth, above the earth, under the earth, in the sea, the living and the dead, every created thing is going to know in their hearts that God is supreme, God is sovereign, God is righteous, God is glorious. They will ascribe it with their lips and they will bow with their knees. Even the thoughts of every created thing will know that he is glorious. In the end, like, like there is no greater definition of you win than that. There's no bigger definition. Everyone, even your enemies, know that you are triumphant and know that you deserve worship. There is no bigger victory that could possibly come. Every heart, every voice, every thought, and every knee will acknowledge that he is supreme and he is glorious. Christian, let your mind go there often. Let your mind go there often for a lot of reasons. One being your encouragement, but that not being the only one. Verse 35, or who is first given that it might be paid back to him again. Uh, turn over to another passage, if you will, please, to uh, John chapter 1 for just a second. John 1, a familiar passage. We'll look at the first three verses there. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, and there are reasons why. Uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now notice verse 3. All things came into being through him, that is through Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, I don't know about you, but for years, I always thought verse three was worded kind of odd. I didn't understand 
What, why that latter part there? Why not just say Jesus made everything? There are some places that say that. He made everything. But John 1, 3 gets more specific because if you're, if you're being the most specific possible, Jesus didn't make everything. There are some, there, there is something he didn't make. What, is, what does that mean? Jesus was involved in making everything that has ever been made. Apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we're given two categories there. Things that were made and things that were never made. What was never made? What is eternal? God. Okay. Jesus made everything that has ever been made. He did not make himself. He did not make the father. The two categories there are God and creation. By, by the way, all of that is summarized in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God, all that has been made, which has hundreds of applications. And here's one of them. If God is the creator of all things that have ever been made, then that means no one has ever given God anything. No one has ever loaned God something. God has never received anything. Now, of course, we use that language of giving to God, but even then we need to know what is truly happening there. We need to know the ultimate sense of this. God has never needed anyone to help him out. He's never needed anyone's strength or effort or money. He doesn't need a house. Heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him. He needs nothing. You can't give anything to him. In the Psalms, God says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> I would just take care of it. But he's not hungry. He needs no food. He needs no sleep. He needs no oxygen. He is the self-sufficient one. He's God. And as God, he is supreme. He does not borrow. He creates and he owns. That's also some of the significance, by the way, of that statement that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Like that's a poetic sort of statement. It's not like a literal, like, oh, it's only a thousand, you know, not a thousand and one. No, it's a poetic way of saying he owns it all. The, those, uh, the, the, those people who think that that field and those cattle are theirs. No, it's God's. He owns it. He made all. He's never received anything. You can't give him something that he did not first create. You can't serve him in any way that he did not first supply the energy and the strength for. Flip back to the Old Testament for a second, for, to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29. I'm going to read it quickly so that we don't take too much time here. Start in verse 10, 1 Chronicles 29, 10. This is uh, David near the end of his life about to die. And uh, the people have given abundantly for the construction of the temple. And so that's the occasion here. He's thinking on that. So watch what happens here. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. 
But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you. And from your hand, we have given you. Did you see that? We've given to God, but it first came from him. For we are sojourners before you. And 10, it says, all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. No hope. O oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. David says there, you know, we've donated to build this temple, but whatever we donated, it first came from your hand, O oh God. This is the scenario of this world. He owns all. C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of mere Christianity. Um, you know, it's my wife's uh, 25th birthday today. Uh, Amber did get that one wrong. Um, and so one of the things that we often do with our kids is we give them money to go into the store to buy us a present, okay? And we enjoy it, but we don't gain. It's not, it's not like we're like, oh yeah, here's five more dollars in my account. So, you know, Tara might get a Barbie doll later from Ruby or something, okay? But it came from our hand that is there, okay? This is the scenario with anything that we give to God. And we have to understand that. And we need to know it pleases God. It matters. Give, but we need to not be deceived. We need to not be deceived. It has come from his hand. And whatever you have that you worked really hard for, Deuteronomy says, all your sweat and all your labor, don't forget, he supplied the strength in order for you to work. It is his sun in the sky, his rain that falls. It is all from him. In fact, here's the next statement in the text. Look at this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This is one of my favorite sentences from the Bible. When this light bulb comes on and we see some of its depth, you'll see everything differently. Everything. Because every tree, you're just like, that's God's tree. He made it. And it's showing his glory in some way. Every moment that you live, this moment was ordained by God and he means good for every moment counts. Every cloud in the sky, every angel that you don't see, everything. It's from him, it's through him, it's to him. So first, when it says that all things are from him, it means that there's nothing that exists that God did not make. As we said from John 1, 3, all that is good, he made. Good that you enjoy, good that you taste. Every bit of provision, he made it. Christian, even the painful things in your life, are still from his hand. He is using it for your good. You will never touch a blade of grass that he did not make. There is no molecule on the furthest asteroid that did not originate by Christ speaking it into existence. And there is some way that it is meant to point to his glory. You are living in his universe. This is his world that you are visitors in. It's all from him. And next, it's all through him. Hebrews 1.3 says, this is speaking of Jesus. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. So he's the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Even the planets are sustained in their courses 
by Christ actively, and I think the word active is, is important, actively continuing their existence. Jesus is actively involved in maintaining the universe. If I understand it correctly, his, his continued life and provision of grace continues existence itself. Your calendar works because the planets continue their course. The planets continue their course because Jesus is upholding the cosmos. You were created by God, but you are also upheld by God. You continue in your existence because God is not dead, because God continues. Do you think this creation would continue to exist, which is a projection, which is a, a creation of God, if God were to cease to exist or if God were to grow tired of it all and just stop. No, life continues because God lives. Life continues because God continues to give that grace. God breathed into Adam the breath of life and man became a living being. The life that is in you is a gift of God coming from his very life extended to you and to you individually. John 1, if we'd have continued reading, it says that Jesus is the light of the world. Light exists because God gives it. If God were to stop, it would go dark. If God could, did not continue to give life, it would fall flat. It's all sustained through him. And then it's all to him. Uh, if you want to turn to a couple passages with me in the New Testament, Colossians chapter one for a moment. In Colossians one, verse 16, speaking of Jesus, once again, by the way, you, you notice this passage is kind of expounding upon this statement. All things are from him, through him, and to him. Colossians 1.16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It's all to him and it's all for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It is all for Christ. Colossians 3 verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Every moment, sweeping the floor, going to work, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's all for him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What this means is that everything, and by everything, I mean everything, is for him. It's all for his glory. That's the purpose of it all. You're never gonna encounter a pebble on the ground that doesn't have the purpose of glorify God in some way. Everything's going to do it. Everything shows it. Everything's going to show it. Every molecule, the dust particle on the farthest planet in the farthest galaxy has the same purpose that you do. Glorify God. Everything. That is what it is all about. It's all somehow 
to point to his honor, his majesty, his beauty, his power. It's to spread his fame. It's to stir the angels to worship. One of the things this means is that you cannot take the Lord too seriously. You know, you'll hear the world around you say some things like, you know, it's fine that you're religious, but you know you can take that stuff too seriously. Okay? The response of heaven, the angels cry out. The Bible cries out. No, you cannot. Everything is from him, through him, and to him. And when the light bulb comes on of what this means, it's all from him, through him, and to him. You're understanding this phrase, the supremacy of God. He is supreme over all. To him be the glory forever. What does it mean when the Bible says this line, to him be the glory or to, to speak of glorifying God? When we, when we glorify God, what we are not doing is adding to his glory. You cannot add any glory to God. He is already infinitely glorious, whether anyone recognizes it or not. To glorify God, though, does mean that we recognize it. We, we see it. We behold it. Now, that, that's kind of poetic language in itself because we cannot yet see God with our physical eyes. What the Bible's talking about, and the book of Hebrews describes this, is seeing with the eyes of faith. Meaning, as we come to understand things, we recognize and understand that he is glorious and it amazes us. That is how we see his glory now. One day, we will see with eyes. But for now, it, it is through a, through a mirror, dimly. It's a, it's a partial. God is the glorious one, however. What God is doing to glorify his name is that he is bringing the recognition of his infinite worth, his might, his power, his majesty, all that makes him wonderful. He is demonstrating to all created things. He is the only one who is glorious. Any, anything else in creation that has glory only has glory because he has given it glory, but it is a glory that belongs to God and it can be revoked at any moment. Man's glory can be robbed, revoked, taken. You cannot take glory from God. And as we mentioned in the end, when everything sees that he is glorious, God will be ultimately glorified. There is no competing glory. All other, all other objects are all moons. You know, the moon does not produce its own light. It reflects the light of another. There is God, the sun, shining with the radiance of glory. And everything else that has glory is only reflecting the glory of God. So glorifying God is when we behold, when we recognize, when it dawns on us. And then we are to respond and we are to point others to see that glory. In the end... The glory of God will cover the earth and all created things will recognize in their heart, will ascribe with their lips and will bow the knee showing the glory of God. This point is captured in Revelation 5 
verses 12 to 14. In Revelation 5 and verse 12, it starts with angels and the, the inhabitants of heaven gathered around the throne. And they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What are they doing? They are heralding. They are with joy announcing that Jesus is worthy of worship. And then here's what comes next. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Let me close with just two brief applications. One to the Christian who has turned to Christ and then secondly to the one who has not yet. So first to you who are in Christ, Numerous passages of the Bible say what Psalm 29, 1 says. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Which means, to ascribe means to attribute and to say it. To, to speak the words what, what it is telling us is that we are to regard God as glorious and worthy according to what he is to do. And then we are to say it. And part of what I'm trying to contrast here is that it's not enough to think it. And it's not enough simply to agree with me as I'm saying these things. We are to say it. To ascribe it means it comes out our lips. We are to sing it. Pray it. Preach it, teach it, talk about it, say it to God, say it in response, say the words, praise God, say hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. It's not enough to just think it. We sometimes fall short as Christians. I've mentioned this before with prayer. We sometimes fall short in thinking that if I agree we're supposed to pray, then we have prayed. Or like if somebody posts a, a prayer request on the Facebook page or something, if we say the word praying, that then we have prayed. Well, no, we haven't prayed unless we stop and speak words to God and say the words. Well, that's similar to ascribe it. Christian, say the words, sing the words. Fully worshiping is not only regarding it in your heart. It's got to start there. Say it. Sing it, sing the hymn. Don't just listen to the hymn, sing the hymn. And not just when you're at church. Scripture, New Testament says, have a, have a hymn rolling in your heart all the time. Sing the doxology regularly, say the words. And then secondly, to you who have not turned to be saved. I wanna tell you something about yourself that the Bible reveals. If you have not turned to Christ to be saved, then, then right now you are not worshiping God in truth. You are not glorifying him. Scripture says it is impossible to please him apart from saving faith. But you need, you need to know you do worship and you do glorify someone or something. It is whatever you think is worth living for. It is whatever you love supremely. But what you need to understand is whatever this thing is that you think is worth living for, comfort, money, sex, fame, 
It, it might not be something evil. It can be something good. But if you worship it because you regard it as worth living for, does it make sense? You're worshiping a mere creation rather than the creator. You're worshiping something that is this tiny, tiny little drop of glory that simply comes from God. You need to be worshiping the one from whom all glory comes, the one who is the glorious one. You need to see that he is creator, ruler, the almighty who is worthy of worship. That thing that you love supremely is not worth it. And it is an inferior pleasure to the joy that you will have in worshiping the living one who is glorious. He's the judge, the judge of the living and the dead. But God has made a way that you can come and have peace with this judge before you come to that day of judgment. And that way is through his son. Believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, not yourself. Don't trust that you're good enough or that it's all going to be okay. No, you look to Christ that he died for sinners and pray and tell God that. Well, lastly, when you read poetry, a helpful way of doing it is to read the poem, study it line by line so that you understand what's said, and then go back and read the whole thing again. So let's read through Romans 11 once again. Let me get there myself. Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who was first given that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray that you will help our hearts to exalt glory and rejoice in you and your glory. We pray, O oh God, that you will help us to live as people who know you and have beheld you. Transform us, change us, bring us to obedience and service. Lord, please bless us as we leave here. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.